Good morning, church. Good to see you all out here this morning. Please uh, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. The title of this sermon is Real Christian Unity, Part 2. So we're continuing where we left off last time. And if you are physically able, please stand as I read from the Word of God. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Starting in verse 1 of Romans 14, Paul the Apostle writes this. He says, Welcome anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not judge the one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's household servant? Before his own Lord he stands or falls, and he will stand, because the Lord is able to make him stand. One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day, observes it for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. But you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just thank you so much that you've given us your word. We have the the full canon of scripture to to have your word to where we can know what it is that that you've done to save us and what it is you expect of us, Lord. And so as we come to this text this morning, I pray that you would be with us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible from it so that I don't mess it up. But Lord, it will be your word going to your people that We who believe on you, Lord, will be more like Jesus as a result of your word being inscribed on our hearts. Um, There's just so much in this chapter that's so important, that is so missed, and I pray, Lord, that we will get it right. Uh, Lord, we pray that those who don't know you will hear your word and be saved on this morning. Lord, we we pray uh, again that in all of this that you will be glorified, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. So last week, we began a part of the book of Romans that is often misused and abused. Typically, people will use Romans 14 to say that if something you do offends another Christian, even if what you're doing is not wrong, you must stop doing that on behalf of the so-called weaker brother or sister, that you offended them, so stop doing what is okay for you to do. And I'm telling you, that is not what this chapter is about. Instead, to help us understand what this is about, consider this real-life example that happened here. Five years ago, we started up our monthly, our, our monthly men's breakfasts. And at one of the first breakfasts we had, we had a Christian who was raised in Sudan that showed up. Now, he's a really godly believer, evangelizes all the time, just solid guy, good Christian. But he showed up in Middle Eastern clothes. And 
to our shame, some of our men, some of our dudes, kept their distance and watched him as if he was going to blow us up. It was only after he ate some of the bacon did, and I'm not making this up, it was only after he put bacon on his plate that some of our guys dropped their guard and started fellowshipping with him. Now look, I understand where they were coming from, but it was wrong. It was wrong. This was a brother for whom Christ died. And because of cultural differences, some did not readily extend the right hand to fellowship until they saw that he ate like we ate, because then it meant he wasn't a Muslim, right? And, and so I, I kind of understand that, but at the same time, this guy showed up to a Christian man's breakfast claiming to be a Christian, and people were scared of him at first just because of his clothes. And that's exactly the kind of thing that this chapter is about, withholding fellowship over stuff like that. Jesus prayed for the church's unity. He said that the world would know that we belong to him if we love each other. Instead, what we see is many Christians divide over things that should not cause division. This chapter of Romans is all about how to prevent that. It's all about how we can remain united in genuine love. So like last week, same point this week, if you're a note taker, the point of the text is this. Christians must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences. We mustn't. That's what this means. We must not judge or despise each other over personal preferences. Now, sin is another matter, but personal preferences is what this is talking about. And if we would stop doing this, then much, if not most, of the division that plagues the church would go away. Now, last time I mentioned that Paul then proves this or shows this in our text in three phases. First, he just commands it. He commands this point, you know, that we should not despise or judge each other over preferences. Second, he explains it. He, he breaks this command down more, gives us the rationale behind it. And then third, he'll give us a warning of what happens if we ignore this command. Now, last time we got through the first of those, just where he gives the command. Today, we're going to finish it up. So last time we got through verses one through four. Now in Romans 14, Paul is correcting a very big problem in the Roman church. And what's really interesting is Romans is Paul's longest letter. It's his most famous letter. And yet he waits until now, nearly the end of the letter, before he corrects them on anything. That's very different than his other letters. If you think of Galatians, 1 Corinthians, he's correcting them right away. But with the Romans, it's not till now that he starts correcting them on something. Apparently, this issue is so big that it's the only one that he's going to correct them on in the whole book. And to pave the way for this correction that, we've, that we're getting to in 14, chapter 14, to pave the way to that, he spent the first 11 chapters giving us his most detailed and wonderful presentation of the gospel. Compare the gospel presentation in Romans to any of his other letters, and this one by far is the most detailed and most wonderful. And yet he gives that big of a gospel presentation to help deal with this issue. That lets you know how big of an issue this is, right? And so just by way of memory, right, first 11 chapters, he explains how everyone is a sinner. And as a result, everyone deserves to be condemned by God for all eternity. No one is a good person. But God makes a way by which sinners can be saved. He sent Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, to come into his own creation as a man and to live the perfect life that we all failed to live. Jesus then died on the cross to pay the penalty of the exceedingly sinful life that we actually have lived. Now, by Jesus paying our penalty on the cross, we don't have to pay that penalty. And by Jesus giving us the credit of his perfect life, we don't have to live a perfect life. We can't, even if we tried. It's his perfect score 
that saves us, and it's his paying our sin debt on the cross that saves us. Salvation entirely comes from him. And therefore, it is a gift. You cannot earn your salvation. You will not get it by being a good person. You will not be saved by doing good works or good deeds. Why? Because you're a guilty sinner. It doesn't matter how much good you do on your own, you're guilty. Therefore, salvation must be and is by Christ alone. And the way we receive it is by faith alone. You must believe on Jesus with all of your heart. And by the way, believe doesn't just mean you agree to a set of facts. It means you turn away from your sins as you're turning to God through Jesus Christ. It is a complete change of direction in loyalty and allegiance. That's what biblical faith is, right? And so if you believe on Jesus with all of your heart and you turn away from your sins as you turn to him, then you will be forgiven and you will be saved. And then if you're saved, what Paul told us is that you get adopted into God's own family. You're given a new heart. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, then comes to live inside of you and gives you spiritual gifts. Now, because of all those changes, you will be able to do good works that actually please the Lord. In fact, it's, it's expected. That's what will happen if you're changed. You will start acting according to that changed nature. Now, you don't do the good works to be saved, but you do them because you already are saved. So I like to say it this way. Being saved is the root but the good works are the, are the fruit. If there's no fruit, then there's no evidence that there's a root, okay? But the fruit's not what saves you. It's the root that does, and then it produces that fruit. So when people are out there saying, I'm a Christian, but their life doesn't show it, and they're not living according to the scripture, we have every reason to doubt their profession of faith because where there's a root, there will be fruit. But again, works are not what saves us. Now, this wonderful salvation should affect the way we live, which is what I was just saying. And in chapter 12, he starts telling us how and why. He says that our lives are supposed to be just worship to God all the time. Your life is your worship, okay? And then he says we should use our spiritual gifts for the church. So again, you're not worshiping him if you're not connected to his church, right? So we're to be using our gifts for the church. And he then tells us in chapter 13, we should love each other adamantly, And by doing so, we fulfill the law of God. Well, sadly, in this Roman church, they were failing to love each other, which brings us to chapter 14. It created some major disunity. And this makes Jesus and his church look bad. So what is the division all about? Well, last week, I went into some detail on the context. I'm not going to do as much of that this time. I'll just give you the fast version. Then if you want the detailed version, you could go get it on our website or on sermonaudio.com. But anyhow, what you had is you had two kinds of believers in the Roman church. You had Jewish Christians, okay, Israelites who believed in Jesus. And then you had Gentile Christians, meaning people who are not Jews, people who are from the nations who believed in Jesus. So you got Jewish Christians and you got Gentile Christians, and they're all in the same church together at Rome, okay? Now, the Jewish Christians still thought, by and large, that they should keep the Sabbath day as holy. They also thought that they should keep the kosher food laws, especially since the food that was sold in the Roman market was likely used in pagan worship services. And so they didn't want to touch it. That's why they were eating vegetables in in this context. Now, because they were copying Daniel from Daniel chapter 1. Now, the Gentile Christians, in contrast, they didn't think they needed to keep any day as special, and they figured we could eat any of the food. It's fine. Well, here's the problem. The Gentile believers had a problem with the Jewish believers for thinking that they need to keep these extra laws of the Old Testament. So they were tempted to despise the Jewish believers. But then the Jewish believers had a problem with the Gentile believers for not keeping these laws. 
from the Old Testament. And so they were then tempted to be hypercritical and judgmental of their brothers. You know, those who tend to follow extra rules and think that God requires these extra rules, they are called the weaker brother in this chapter. Okay? Now, those who don't follow those extra rules are called the stronger brothers. And what happened is they were conflicting with each other. The conflict between the two got so bad that it was threatening their ability to have the Lord's Supper together. Now, if you think about it, the Lord's Supper is the one thing above everything else that should display our unity in Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 10 says we are the one bread, right? It should display our unity. Yet because of these differences in Rome, the Lord's Supper was even becoming the cause of their disunity. Okay, and some of that will be brought up next time. This is why Paul is correcting them here. Now, what modern readers tend to do is they read this chapter and they think that it's talking about whether or not it's okay to get tattoos and body piercings. They think it's about figuring out how to use our Christian liberties without offending people with hyperactive consciences. But that ultimately is not what this chapter is about. This is about Christians from different cultures being able to be one church together. And the only way this can be achieved is if love leads the way. Christians have to love each other. They have to choose not to despise or judge each other over personal preferences. And if they follow this, then there will be unity. So the way Paul displays this is first he commanded it in verses 1 through 4. By way of summary, he directly tells the stronger believer, accept the weaker believer. Bring them into your circle. He then commands both to not argue over different opinions. Just don't even argue about it. He then tells us who the stronger one is and who the weaker one is. I've already explained that. He then commands the weaker brothers not to judge those who don't keep kosher. And that's pretty much where we ended last week. That's what we saw. That was the command. Accept each other. Don't argue about matters of preference. The strong must not despise the weak, and the weak must not judge the strong. So, after saying all that, he's now going to explain this command in much more depth. So, let's take a look at verses 5 through 9. That's where he explains it. First, I want you to look back at verse 2, though. In verse 2, he says, One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. I bring that up because verse 5 almost says the same thing, but now on a different issue. So he's continuing the same thought. Look at verse 5. He says, one person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. So again, it's kind of the same situation. And just to be clear, just in case anybody's confused about this, the one day that is more important than another day in this context is the Sabbath. God commanded Israel to keep the Sabbath day as holy. That is one thing that set the Jews apart from all the nations. Even during the time that the book of Romans was written, one thing that annoyed Gentiles to no end about the Jews was that they rest on Saturdays. You could read the ancient literature. Every time they took shots at the Jews, they were lazy for taking Saturdays off. The Gentiles absolutely hated this about the Jewish people. Everyone else back then worked seven days a week. Now you have this people, though, who for the longest time have been resting on Saturday. They worship their God on that day. Now, given that that Gentiles were used to working every day, they're going to look at every day being the same. So the question is, who is right in this case? Personally, I think both are right. And I know that seems contradictory, but I want you to think about it, okay? If you were a Jewish Christian and you grew up on the Old Testament the command to keep the Sabbath was a big deal. 
It is in the Ten Commandments. In fact, it is part of the first table of the Ten Commandments, which deals with our relationship with God. Okay, first four commandments of the ten. You shall have no other God before me. You won't make idols. You won't use God's name in vain. And you keep the Sabbath. Okay, so that's a pretty big deal. Okay, furthermore, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives them the rationale for keeping the Sabbath. God modeled it when he created the universe. He, He created and worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. Now, God doesn't need to rest. Okay, he's omnipotent. But he ceased work after day six, because it was completed. So all work's completed in six days, and then there is a ceasing of work on the seventh day. And if that wasn't enough reason to see the seventh day as being set apart, right, from all the rest, God then commanded the Israelites to expel anyone who doesn't keep the Sabbath. In fact, early in the book of Exodus, after he gives the law, he actually orders somebody to be executed to make a point. And that was because the person violated the Sabbath. Now, later when Israel rejects God and descends into idolatry and God kicks them out into Babylon, he mentions that the the land is now going to get the Sabbaths that Israel was ignoring. So, of course, Sabbath is a very important deal in the Old Testament. So if you fast forward to the time when Paul wrote Romans, every Jew growing up, they knew all this stuff, right? They kept the Sabbath whether they were in Israel or whether they lived among the nations, okay? To tell them they don't have to keep the Sabbath would sound like you're trying to tell them to rebel against God. It'd be a very hard pill for them to swallow. And yet, though, on the other side of this, we do know that the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 made it clear. Specifically, when it comes to Gentile believers, they don't have to keep the commands of the Torah or the law of God. Okay, The only thing they had to do is not eat food sacrificed to idols, not commit sexual immorality, don't consume blood, and don't eat animals that have been strangled. Those are the aspects of the law that they wanted the Gentiles to keep. Otherwise, the Torah did not apply. Right? In fact, I want you to look at Acts chapter 15, verse 19 with me for a second. James, who was presiding over the Jerusalem council, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, he said this. He said, therefore, in my judgment... We should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Now think about that. He's only talking about the Gentiles here, but he doesn't want to cause difficulties for them. One reason, apart from this one, that the law or the Torah was not imposed on the Gentile believers is because we're saved by grace and not by works. So it's unnecessary for you to keep the law to be saved. But those who are saved by grace, we are supposed to live lives obedient to God. Now, to a Jew, it made sense that the way you live obedient to God is by keeping the Torah. They're not doing it to be saved. They're just saying, this is how we obey God. But the Jerusalem council realized that that's not a good thing to do to the Gentiles, right? There's a second reason it's a good idea not to ask the Gentiles to be Torah observant. It would cause more difficulties for them. That's why James says we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, think about it. Being a Christian, no matter what, is going to cause difficulties. The whole world hates Jesus more than they hate you. So if you follow Jesus, they're going to hate you like they hate him, right? So no matter what, you're going to face difficulties by being a Christian. So the question we have to ask is, what does James mean then there when he says he doesn't want to cause difficulties for the Gentiles? What he means is he doesn't want to cause unnecessary difficulties for them. The gospel is offensive enough. 
renouncing all the pagan gods, right? Because that's what a Gentile Christian had to do. Renouncing all the pagan gods and abandoning their temples is going to cause plenty of difficulty all on its own. Just read Ephesians or Acts chapter 19 and look at the riot in Ephesus over this very kind of thing. Okay, that kind of persecution is unavoidable. So given that Gentile believers are going to be dealing with a lot of junk from Gentile pagans, does it really make sense to give the pagans even more reason to hate the Gentile believers? They already despise Jews for taking Saturdays off. Now if these Gentiles abandon their culture, their, their paganism, right, and then take Saturdays off as well, oh man, there will be an uproar. So no need to add extra difficulties for them. I could just imagine how the Gentile believers would be accused by their neighbors of destroying their economy by taking one day off, you're reducing production. Or they're already being blamed at this point for famines and natural disasters. The, the pagans would say, we had a drought because you guys are abandoning our, our ancient gods. And so then they would, they would punish them. They would persecute them. So why add more difficulties to these believers? Listen, coming to Christ costs a lot. And it cost a lot to the Gentiles back then. Today, and I know we don't think about this, where I'm going with this, but today, a Jew becoming a Christian costs that Jew everything, right? If you follow Christ today and you're a Jew, you're hated by your own people. Just check out my Twitter account, right? The people who come after me hardest are Jews because I'm a Jew that believes in Jesus. They absolutely, absolutely hate me, right? But that was not the case in the first century. It was very different then. There were thousands of Jewish Christians in Israel, as Acts 21 showed us. It was just seen as one more sect added to the other ones in Israel, right? They were just seen as Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they were still living their lives like normal Jews. They were still seen as faithful Jews. Yes, some people persecuted them, but it wasn't that bad. The big break didn't come until much later, okay? So that being said, it did not cost the Jews hardly anything to become a Christian back then when Paul wrote this. They were still Jews at the end of the day. But for the Gentiles, it cost them everything. It was harder, what I'm saying is it was harder to be a Gentile Christian. Paul described the conversion of Gentile Thessalonians like this in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He says, For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? They're turning away from all the idols of their people, and they're only serving the real God. So what that meant is if you were a Gentile back then, to become a believer in Jesus, you had to upend your entire life. Your ancestral gods, rejected. Your ancestral customs that were tied to that paganism, rejected. A lot of the social customs of the day were religious, so you rejected them. And if you lived in a big city, guess what? Your job was your trade. Okay, so let's pretend you were a blacksmith. Well, to do business in that city, you had to belong to a guild. It's like an ancient labor's union. You had to belong to a guild. Well, guess what happens with that guild? That guild would pick one of the pagan Greek gods or goddesses to be the patron god or deity. And then you would have to pay your dues to the guild. And then that money would go to pagan worship services. And then a couple times a year, you were expected to show up in the pagan temple of that god where you make sacrifices and you celebrate in the name of that god, hoping that god will bless your guild. As a Christian, could you do that? No. And so what would happen is you would say, I can't pay my dues anymore and I can't show up to these meetings. And then the guild would kick you out and say, fine, you can't blacksmith in this city. And so now your only way to make a living is if there's enough Christians that are willing to pay you for that, that service. 
So my point is, if you were a Gentile then, and you became a Christian, you had to hang everything up. You probably wouldn't even be able to do your trade. Your extended family would be mad at you. Your people would be mad at you. Your city would be mad at you. But in contrast, if you were a Jew that decided to follow Christ, what changed for you? You're still worshiping the God of Israel. You're still reading the same scriptures of Israel. Your Gentile neighbors are already used to you taking Saturdays off. They're already used to your special food that you're eating. Okay, so they're really not going to think anything of it. The things that are going to annoy them is the Jewish stuff, not, not so much the Christian stuff. So you're not really getting extra hate for the pagans back then, being a Jewish Christian. And again, that's very different from today. Today, if you're a Gentile in America and you become a Christian, costs you nothing. Okay, somebody at your work might say, oh, you joined the bigots. That's about all you're going to have to deal with. It does not upend your entire life right now if you're a Gentile and you become a Christian. It will if you're a Jew. Now, I will give a caveat. If you're a Gentile in China and you turn away from the Communist Party and give your allegiance to Christ, it will cost you much. Or if you're in India and you turn away from the false gods of Hinduism, it will cost you much. I think we live in a world today where throughout most of the world, whether you're Jew or Gentile, coming to Christ costs you everything. The only place I would say America, Europe, it's a little easier for for Gentiles to come to the Lord. Very much the opposite back then. Now, here's the thing. Back to my point, okay? If Gentile believers had to keep the laws of the Jews it would make their life even harder. So the apostles said, you don't got to do that. You don't have to do that. Now, the reason I bring all that up is I want you to understand why both sides in this controversy thought the way that they did. Otherwise, this chapter doesn't make sense. The Gentile believers were not a bunch of lawless libertines who were abusing their liberties. That's what people try to spin this into. Ah, oh, these guys just want to flaunt their liberties. No, Every day was the same to them. No day was special because they had to give up all the special days of their religion. They got no special days left, and they're working every day, right? That's what it's about there, okay? They had to stop going to the pagan temples, but they weren't going to stop eating. They got to eat, okay? And they didn't have to stop eating, right? They weren't going to keep the Sabbath. They didn't have to keep the Sabbath. And likewise, the Jewish believers were not being a bunch of hyperactive legalists. The New Testament wasn't even written yet. If they pulled out a Bible, it was the Old Testament. That was what was in their hands. They were simply doing what it said. Additionally, Jesus, the apostles, and all the Christians in Israel were still keeping the Torah, right? So neither side is wrong here inherently is what I'm saying. That's why I said both sides are right. This was not an either-or situation. This was a situation of both and. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind, though, is because of the gospel— Because of the good news of Jesus Christ, God is saving people from every nation. And the people from the nations, they don't have an obligation to the Torah or the the, the law of Moses. They just don't. But if you remember back to chapter 11 of Romans, what did Paul say about Gentiles who believe in Jesus? They're being grafted into what? They're being grafted into Israel. And according to Ephesians 2, it says they who were far away are now brought to the commonwealth of Israel. He says the wall of division has been torn down. So you have to ask yourself this. How do you have a single local church that has nations who are not beholden to the law of Moses, and yet Jews who are, how do you have them function in one church together? That's what this text is about. That's what it's trying to to figure out for us. And listen, the wrong answer is to say that one must conform to another. And that's where all our problems come from. Everybody wants people to conform to the way they do things point of this chapter is it's wrong to make people conform that way, 
right? Since God is saving the nations, let's just talk about objective reality here, kosher food laws aren't necessary, okay? To evangelize people, you will likely be invited into their homes. And the worst thing that you could do in a hospitality culture is push their food away and say, nope, can't eat it. You're never even going to get to start the gospel presentation there. The purpose of kosher in the Old Testament was to keep Israel separate from the nations. But the purpose of the gospel is to invite the nations into Israel. So guess what had to go? The kosher food laws, right? That's what had to go. Through Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are being brought in to, in a sense, the commonwealth of Israel. So the Gentile believers, objectively speaking, are the ones who are right, more right, let's put it that way, in this context. That's why they're the stronger believers. And the fact that they had to give up more to follow Christ anyway likely would make them stronger too. So objectively speaking, every day is the same because all, and, and all food types are permitted. But we saw in Acts chapter 21 last time that ethnic Israel is still expected to keep the Torah. That much was made clear from what James said to Paul. And so I went over that last week. So again, back to the question, how do you have a single local church that has Gentiles not beholden to the law and yet Jews who are beholden to the law, how do they be one together? How do they function in one church and come to the Lord's Supper together? Okay, the strong, he told us, verses 1 through 4, the strong must accept the weak. The weak must not judge the strong. Neither should argue with each other about this. It's that simple. Now, getting back to verse 5, Paul said that one thinks one day is special and another thinks they're all the same. In the end of verse 5, he's going to lay down a simple rule that should help solve this. He writes this. He says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Look, if you are convinced based on the Bible that every day is alike and any food is good to eat, then you're good to go. Thank God you're convinced according to the Bible. And if you are convinced that you should keep the Sabbath because you're Jewish and you should eat kosher, then go ahead and do so. You're all right, as long as you're convinced in your mind that this is what the Bible is, is directing you to do. At least it's, if you think that's what you should do, okay? Notice, he says, make sure you're convinced in your own mind, but he's not telling each side to convince the other side. Again, he already said, don't argue about it. In verse 1, he's telling you, look, all that matters is on these preferential issues, you be convinced in your own mind. If one person, or if one position, though, you might be wondering, okay, hold on, wait a second. If one position is more correct than the other, like we should be able to eat all food, then why would Paul allow for this? Why would he say, hey, it's okay to have different opinions on this, just be convinced in your own mind? Why would he let the Sabbath observer keep observing the Sabbath? Why would he let the kosher eater keep eating kosher? Verse 6 answers that question. He writes this. He says, whoever observes the day, observes it, for the honor of the Lord. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it's for the Lord that he does not eat it. And he gives thanks to God. Now think about what he's saying here. Why does the Jewish Christian keep the Sabbath in this context? Is he really doing it to be a legalist? Is that what he's doing? Is he doing it so he could find something to judge you about? No. Paul's saying he does it, quote, for honor of the Lord. Why do my messianic brothers keep the Sabbath? Why don't you go ask them rather than assuming? They'll tell you it was given to our Jewish generations forever. They'll tell you that God made the Sabbath for man to enjoy, to draw us closer to God. They'll tell you that God commanded Israel specifically to keep the Sabbath, and he made a big deal out of it. And so they want to honor him. That's why they're doing it. They're keeping it for him. 
And I think, now I just got to throw this out there though, I think this is very different than Gentile believers today who have bought into the Hebrew roots nonsense. Okay, you got this Hebrew roots movement where they don't even know Hebrew. They're just a bunch of people who don't even know how to use a Strong's Concordance, right? And the thing is, they, they look up these words and say, I think we need to be keeping the Sabbath. This is what God demands of, of the Gentiles as well. Despite Acts 15, despite everything else the Bible says, they're like, nope. And then what they say is they say that, that the, the Gentile believers have somehow, the church has diabolically switched Sabbath worship to Sunday worship, which is pagan. Right, And then they start, so what these guys do is they start keeping the Sabbaths, they start keeping the feasts, and they don't even keep the feasts right usually. But then they critically judge others who don't. I guess I just critically judge them for not keeping it right. But the point is, they start judging others for not doing the same thing. And here's where it gets really bad. They stop going to church. I can't go to your church because you guys meet on Sunday. Well, where are you going? No, we just meet in our house, uh, me and my family, and we go over Scripture together. Right? I mean, for real. Think about it. And then they accuse churches of worshiping pagan gods by keeping Easter instead of Passover, which is absurd. Easter is just the Germanic word Oster, which means Passover. It has nothing to do with, the, with Ishtar or an Assyrian goddess. It is Oster. It has to deal with Passover. And if you look at the Latin-based languages, what their word for Easter is, it's the Latin word for Passover. Okay? So again, my point is, these people who do this, they are not keeping the Sabbath to honor the Lord. They are keeping it as a means of keeping themselves separate from God's people. And that is evil, right? And then when they are corrected with the scripture, they simply ignore it. When you bring up the letter from Acts 15, which tells the Gentiles that they don't have to keep these things, they ignore you. When you bring up Paul's condemnation of Gentiles who believe you have to keep these things, when Paul says it's a different gospel, they ignore you. When you, believe up, when you bring up Colossians that says the Sabbath and all that stuff and the feast, they're the shadow, Jesus is the substance. They ignore you. These folks are like the legalists of Galatians, and as such, they are functional heretics, and we need to be praying for them and evangelizing them. It is not, what they are doing is not the same as Jewish believers on the messianic side of things, keeping Sabbath and the feast. It's not, okay? It is inappropriate to force Gentiles to keep the Sabbath because the Sabbath was not given to them. It was given to Israel. And yet with the coming of Christ, even the Sabbath is optional for Jews. It's optional because he is the substance. Christ is the substance. They were just the shadow. Okay? Now for now, I can tell you though about myself, when I keep Passover, I do it for the Lord. When I build a sukkah in my backyard and eat all my meals in it for eight days, I do it for the Lord. Look, I'm not a handyman. I hurt myself every year in some way putting that thing together. Okay? But I do it for the Lord. I love how interactive these holy days are. They're, they're, I can see Christ in all of them. They're like baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're tangible object lessons that, that show you Jesus, right? And so we learn from them. And it makes us think about the Lord. And it causes us to marvel at how they point at Christ. And then since Christ has already come, we look back at these days. They have even more meaning for us than they would for the Jews who don't believe in Christ, Okay, so when I do these things with my family, I could promise you, I am not looking down on the rest of you who don't. As we're in the sukkah, I'm not like, let us enjoy the fact that we're not like all the other people at Sovereign Way who don't have a sukkah in their backyard. No, that is not, not what we're doing. I don't judge or look down on anybody. There's no legalism in this. It's a liberty. I am free to not observe those things, and I'm free to observe them. I like observing them. That's all it is. 
And that's what makes it not legalistic. Now, I do believe, as I mentioned last week, the scripture's overall thrust on this topic is that I should observe them, but if I don't, I'm not in sin. It's, it's not a must, it's just a should. So again, Paul's point here is the Torah observer honors God in his observation. The person who does not keep kosher also honors God. Look again at verse 6. Whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. That food, regardless of where it came from, is a gift from God. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, God said, all the green plants are for you to eat. Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, every animal is given for food to humanity. God did not restrict it until later, and it was only to the Jews. But again, that restriction's been lifted. Acts chapter 10 makes that clear. As God is now cleansing the nations, bringing them into to Israel through Christ, can't declare these foods unclean anymore, right? And so Gentiles are fine eating whatever they want. So am I as a Jew. And when I last week said I was going to eat all-you-could-eat shrimp the next day, I did. Anyhow. <laughs> so anyhow, the one who eats the pork. Now, you might get me on gluttony, but not on violating kosher. So the one who eats the pork or shrimp, he eats it for the Lord, right? He thanks God for this bounty, and because he gives thanks, it is clean. But what about the one who keeps kosher and restricts a lot of food items for himself? Again, what does verse 6 say? At the end of it, it says, whoever does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat it, and he gives thanks to God. So again, why is the person keeping kosher? He does it for the Lord. He thinks he's honoring the Lord. So by saying no to pork and saying no to lobster, which is difficult, he is doing this to honor the Lord, he or she. In fact, this person is thanking God for the kosher food that is available to him. So imagine this, because this is what it's all getting down to. Imagine this, a Gentile eating pork and a Jew eating lamb right next to him at the same table. And both thank God. Both are eating what they are eating for the Lord. The one eating the bacon does not despise the one with the lamb chops. And the one eating the lamb chops is not judging the one eating the bacon. They are both okay with each other's preference. Neither has to change what they do on behalf of the other person. Both simply accept each other and they don't argue about it. This now makes it possible for them to do church together. This makes it possible for them to partake of the Lord's Supper since everyone could eat unleavened bread and, and drink the fruit of the vine, right? So they're not separating if they just do what Paul is saying here. Imagine if these two could sit next to each other and eat their own thing, thanking God for his provision, and then imagine that they also even thank God for each other. Imagine that they thank God for their very visible differences since that showcases the power of the gospel. Imagine them thanking God for this clear picture that the wall of division is torn down and that Gentiles can sit at Israel's table eating their own food as Israel eats its food and that they're fine with it and they love each other and they don't argue about it. And then imagine the world, somebody of the world looking at them and, and saying, how is this possible? How can these two be united when they are so different? How can they even be comfortable with these differences? And imagine both of them at the same time turn to the worldly one and say, we could do this because Jesus is Lord of both of us. That is what this is about. What a powerful display that would be. 
And imagine if it wasn't just Jews and Greeks, but Jews, Greeks, Americans, the French, Chinese, Japanese, Iranians, Saudi Arabians, South Africans, Kenyans, Colombians, and everybody else all at the same table. And if they were all eaten together in the same way, fine with their differences. And then they look to the worldly one and say, we can do this because Jesus is Lord of all of us. That is the picture the church is supposed to paint to the world, that all the divisions caused by sin are broken down in the Lord Jesus Christ. And food is a really stupid reason to break that up. And music, okay, hymns versus contemporary, is a dumb reason to break that up. Okay, that is what this passage is all about. That is why, and I'm just going to say this, it is insulting to Paul's point to reduce this down to trifle liberty issues like tattoos and body piercings, skirts and pants, cards and dancing, and hymns and contemporary music. That's not what this is about. There is so much more at stake. The gospel is at stake here. That is why Paul spent 11 chapters on the gospel just to get us to this point. Ultimately, this acceptance of each other's differences and preferences, as long as we're not talking about sin, okay? If we're talking about sin, then no, we have to hold each other accountable. But if we're not talking about sin, then this acceptance of each other's differences and preferences, listen, it's grounded in the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's not just based on this relativism, well, I'm convinced in my mind. It's actually grounded on something even deeper. And this is why it can work. And this is why it must work. And that is why it is so bad when we refuse to obey this. Look at what verses 7 and 8 say. Paul writes this. This is where he starts to ground it. He says, For none of us lives for himself, and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. His point is clear. Whether you are not keeping special days and diets, or whether you are, You do not live for yourself. Not if you're a Christian. It's not about you, it's about him. If you remember chapter 6, it says that that you died with Christ and now you've been raised with him. And baptism, which we're going to be seeing today, paints a picture of that. It says you're united to him. You're no longer a slave to sin anymore, according to your sinful passions, but now you are Christ's freedmen. That means you now live for him. You're free to live for him. Likewise, you're free to die for him. You're not dying for your own cause, right? Your life is wrapped up in Jesus. It's wrapped up in his mission, which he gave to you, which is called the Great Commission, okay? Also, remember, you were bought at a price. That's what the Bible says. If you belong to Jesus, you were bought at a price. Your life is not your own anymore, and neither is your death. Now, why does Paul even make this argument? Because if your life and death both belong to Jesus, then so too does everything that happens in between. That includes your eating. That includes your not eating. That includes your special day keeping. It includes all your preferences. Every single one of those preferences belongs to Christ. And while you live, you live for Jesus. That means you eat whatever you feel led to eat, but you do it for him. That means you keep whatever day you want, but you do it for him. And to bring up Those other things, I guess we can find a way to bring it. If you're going to dance, then you dance for him. But let it be like King David's dancing, right? It's not going to be inappropriate dancing. And guess what? What if somebody gets offended? His own wife did. She was wrong, okay? David did what he did unto the Lord. If you're going to have a glass of wine, then lift the cup up unto him like Jesus lifted the cup up for us. And don't ever get drunk because that's wrong, right? If you're going to heal on the Sabbath like Jesus did, 
And, and what I mean by that is our first responders who have to work on Saturdays and even who have to work on the Lord's Day sometimes, they are healing the sick. Okay, they're the hands and feet of Jesus that way. If you're going to do that, do it unto God, just as Christ did. If you're going to get a tattoo, then do it unto him rather than unto yourself. Or don't do what the ancient Canaanites did. They did it to worship the gods of, of Canaan and, and to worship the dead. Now, I don't think a lot of people in America are doing that, but I would say that if your reason for getting a tattoo is my body, my choice, you sound like somebody else. Okay, Everything we do, is supposed to be under the glory of God. So if you could do that under the glory of God, hey, knock yourself out, right? If it's for Christ and you belong to Christ, then the things you do, you're going to do for him. And it will be obvious, right? And people will not be able to legitimately fault you. Again, David's wife tried to fault him. She was wrong. People will not be able to legitimately fault you. If we live for Jesus in that way, we can also die for him in that way. The way we die matters as well. We don't deny his name just to save our lives because the gun's to our head. No, we don't do that. We also don't violate his command and get high just to remove some of our pain, right? Oh, I'm in pain, so I'm going to smoke a blunt and dull my pain. Listen, you've transgressed God's commands, okay? There's other ways to deal with your pain just to let you know. We, we live for God in this way. We die for him in this way. And you have to ask yourself, how did Christ die? He carried his own cross to the spot where they killed him on it. Are you greater than your Lord, O Christian? No, you're not. Never forget what our Lord taught us. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said this to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If you're living for yourself, you're not following him. To follow him, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross, follow him. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Okay, so again, our life, our death, it's all wrapped up in the Lord. We do things his way for him. Why? Verse 8 ended by saying this. Verse 8 says, therefore, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. That's why we belong to the Lord. It's all unto him. And then verse 9 grounds all of this on Jesus' lordship over everything. Look at verse 9. It says, Christ died and return to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. There is nothing and there is no one that is not under the rule of Jesus Christ our Lord. And for those who believe on him, whether we are living and breathing or whether we've already passed on into his presence, we're still under his lordship. Doesn't matter what category you're in. And thank God we're under his lordship because our Lord is perfect. Now think about Paul's explanation in verses 5 through 9 of this command that we accept each other and not judge. He said your preference, preference is fine as long as you are convinced biblically in your own mind. He said the reason that is the case is because you are doing this preference to honor God. At least you should be. Otherwise, now you're not doing it right. Okay, but let's assume you're convinced in your own mind, you're doing it to honor God. And so then he says, why should we despise or judge someone as they're honoring the Lord in their own way? Why should we judge a different culture for the way they dress or the way they eat or whatever or the way they sing? Why should we judge them if at least according to their culture, they're legitimately honoring the Lord in their own way? We shouldn't. We should be thankful that those who are different than us, that follow Jesus, that their heart is for the Lord. And we should see their actions as, a, as beautiful examples of worship. 
And then Paul takes all that and he grounds it all by the fact that Jesus is our Lord. We're doing this all for him anyway. This is living for him. And since he is our Lord, we're to embrace the fact that he is uniting all kinds of people into his body, the church, where we get to display this before the entire world. Now, sadly, some believers miss this point. Okay, the one who is less strict, that's the problem in Rome, it's the problem we have here and everywhere, okay, the one who's less strict despises the one who is stricter. So look at this stupid legalist, right? And then the one who is stricter judges the one who's less strict. Look at this libertine flaunt his liberty, right? And the result is they're undermining the very thing Christ is doing, knocking down the wall. He's knocking down the wall, and as he knocks it down, we're picking the bricks back up and stacking that wall back up over foolish things, okay? Well, here's the thing. Paul closes with a warning, okay? So he gave the explanation. Now he moves us to a warning, and we see that in verses 10 through 12. Let's look quickly at it. I mentioned earlier that that this chapter is the first time in the book that Paul corrects them for sin. Verse 10 is where that happens. He writes this. He says, but you, so he's he's directing it to them, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's a pretty big warning. Now, you might think he corrected them in verse 4 when he said, who are you to judge another's household servant? But it was, it was still hypothetical then. He didn't say that's what they were doing. He said, one person eats one thing, somebody else eats only vegetables, who are you to judge? It's all rhetorical there. He was simply making the point we shouldn't be doing that. But here it's no longer hypothetical. He directly says, but you, okay? He makes it very clear this is what they are doing, and he's accusing both sides. Both are wrong right? This isn't just the weak who are guilty of being legalistic. And it's not just the strong who are being guilty of flaunting their liberty. So if you look at it, first he accuses the weak. He says, but you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Remember, verses one through four, we saw that the weak are the ones who judge and the strong are the ones who despise, okay? And so there's a difference between judging and despising. So given that he says, but you, why do you judge? This first question, he's hitting the Jewish believers with this. Why are you judging your Gentile brothers who are not following the Torah? They don't have to, okay? But then in the second question, he accuses the strong. He says, or you. So the first one, or you. Second one, or you, okay? Different group of people. Why do you despise your brother or sister? Gentiles, why are you despising your Jewish brothers and sisters? Why are you looking down at them because they're just keeping the traditions they have had since the Lord called them out of Egypt, okay? The unity of the church is being broken because both sides are splitting and dividing over this. The fault lies with both. Love is not being displayed. Unity is vanishing before their eyes. Why? The strong despise the weak, and the weak judges the strong. It's that simple. Paul's logic in this chapter is clear. Accept each other. Don't argue about this stuff. Just be convinced in your own mind. Okay, be fine with each other since both sides are trying to honor the Lord. This is in harmony with the lordship of Jesus Christ because we live for him and we die for him. And if that is the truth, then why would you judge your brother? Or why would you despise your brother? Why would you do this over preferences? Why would you do this over things that that they're doing unto the Lord just because it's different than how you do things unto the Lord? Why? It's before each, each of us answers to our Lord for ourselves, is, is my point. It's before his own Lord that each person will stand. In fact, 
That becomes the basis of Paul's warning. He established the fact that they are disobeying the command. So in verse 11, he's going to quote Isaiah 45, verse 23, off of memory. It's a loose quotation, and he mixes it with the part of Isaiah 49, 18. But for the most part, Isaiah 45, 23, here's what he says. He says, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. Now, what is Paul getting at by quoting this? Well, God makes it clear, every knee will bow to him and every tongue will praise him. That implies that every person will one day stand before God and give an account. And that's exactly his point. Look at verse 12. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In other words, do you really think you should be judging your fellow Christian over the extra rules that you choose to follow? Okay, Or do you think you should be despising your fellow Christian because they follow extra rules? Don't you realize you're not the judge? Don't you realize that a day is coming where you yourself will stand before the judge? Your brother will not have to give an account to you over preferential matters, but you will have to give an account to God over how you treated your brother and sister over preferential matters. That's ultimately what he's getting at here. And what's interesting is Isaiah is clearly speaking of God the Father in whom every person will give an account. And Paul is using it the same way here. In fact, he says the judgment seat of God, that's the Bema seat. That's the seat of judgment where believers stand before God. Yeah, the world, they get judged by the great white throne judgment and they go to the lake of fire. But believers, we have our own judgment called the Bema seat judgment. And he said, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. He's talking to believers here. And what's interesting is in Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes the same passage from Isaiah, but he applies it to Jesus. To Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? And that makes sense because both the Father and the Son are equally the one God. And Jesus made it clear in the Gospel of John that the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. So we will have to give an account to Jesus Christ. Now, speaking in general of the general judgment, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 36. He says, I tell you, on on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Just think about that. You might be saying, yeah, but, but I'm a believer. True, he's talking to unbelievers here. But Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us we're going to stand before Jesus as well. Here's what he says. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So again, if, it, if it's something that unbelievers, careless words, if they're going to have to answer for that, and yet we got to stand before Jesus and give an answer for how we lived as Christians, then, hey, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says we're still going to have to answer for this. Now, this might seem weird to you, right? Because this is hardly ever taught to Christians in our society. Instead, people are told that if they believe, they'll be saved, and that's the end of the story. And it is true that you're saved by faith. You're not saved by works. But there is still an accounting of Christ that he will require from us. That is what that verse said. You can't just delete a verse out of the Bible because you don't like it. And it doesn't fit with your constructed theology. No, there is an accounting that Christ will require for us. There is a repaying of, that, that, that we have to answer for, for what we did as believers, both good and bad. Most Christians I run into act as if they don't really believe that they're going to have to stand before Christ to give this account. They have no fear of God because they have an attitude of presumptuousness before him. Well, I raised my hand. I said a prayer. I could do whatever I want. That's presumptuousness. 
They forget that John the Apostle, the Apostle that Jesus loved, when he saw the glorified Jesus in Revelation 1, he fell at his feet as though a dead man because of how glorious Jesus looked. They forget that Jesus told John to write the seven letters to the seven churches, and it was Jesus telling him what to write. And in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus said, my eyes are like fire, my mouth is a sword, I will remove unfaithful churches, I will wage war against the unfaithful people in those churches, and I might even spit some of you out of my mouth. That is what the risen Lord says to churches. And that's the stuff that we often don't hear these days. Now listen, that has to be held in balance with the fact that Romans 8.1 said there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? We don't hold it in balance by deleting one, okay? We find a way to say, well, those who are in Christ Jesus, by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to be living lives of greater sanctification in the Lord. Yeah, we still mess up, but we're, that's our trajectory. Those who don't live for Christ at all and just raise their hand and said a prayer, they're the ones that are going to be spit out of the mouth because they're not in Christ Jesus, Again, no fruit means no root. That's how we balance these together, okay? But I think the problem is we American Christians are so smug. We have no idea of what it means to stand before the glorious Lord. And it's because there's no fear of God before our eyes. If we would read the Bible more, that reverence and awe for our Lord would come back. It would. Now, perhaps the Roman Christians had the same problem. That is why Paul warns them here. He's telling them, tread carefully. If you divide the body of Christ over matters of culture and preference, and you make Christ look bad, then beware. You will give an account to him. If you despise the one with an overactive conscience, then beware, for you will give an account. If you judge the one with a more balanced conscience, then beware, for you will give an account. You don't want to be found on the wrong side of this. And what is interesting, and yet totally missed by most people, is how serious this all is. When churches split over this stuff, Paul's warning of judgment. When cliques form over this kind of stuff in the church, Paul's warning of judgment. When churches segregate over music style rather than the content of the lyrics, Paul warns of judgment. When some members bully others over stuff like this, Paul warns of judgment. So why not rather thank God for our differences? If a Sabbath keeper keeps it to honor the Lord, why not thank God for the heart of this person that seeks to please God? And if a person eats kosher to please God, why not celebrate that? And if a person eats anything and does so to honor the Lord, then why not praise God? If a person treats every day alike, why not support them as they do it? Because they're doing that for the Lord. And then just as a little aside, okay? I know I'll be stepping on some toes, don't care. Um, The word is the word. The Bible never, ever, 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 for emphasis, ever, times a thousand, teaches that the Sabbath has changed to Sunday. It does not teach that. Find me a verse. You only get there by a certain hermeneutic that was popular among some people where the church replaces Israel, so circumcision becomes baptism and Sunday becomes the Sabbath. Okay, but that is not biblical. The Sabbath is Saturday. It's always been Saturday. It always will be. And what's interesting is the people who insist that the Sunday is the Sabbath, they've now made themselves the weaker brother because they're saying, well, we got to, you know, do all this stuff on Sunday because it's the Sabbath. Oh, you're a Sabbath keeper now. You're the weaker brother, according to this. They would never see themselves that way, but they are. Okay, listen, this text made it clear every day is alike. Every day is alike. And Sunday is not the Sabbath. But here's the thing. 
Sunday is designated as the Lord's Day to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that says Christians can't work or do stuff on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And I know people try to say, yeah, but we should treat it as the Sabbath. If you can, by all means. But I don't know if you noticed this. In the New Testament, they still went to work on Sunday. They didn't have a day off. Their worship service on Sunday, they always met on the Lord's Day. You don't have an excuse not to meet on the Lord's Day, except in some cases, okay? There's some, but for the most part, you don't. But they met at night. Why do you think Eutychus fell out the window at midnight? You think Paul was preaching from 10 in the morning till midnight? (laughs) That would be awesome. But no, they started like at around 8 o'clock. So Paul still went pretty long. And then Eutychus falls out that window. It's because they met at night. So yes, Lord's Day, we have to gather, but it's not the Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the Sabbath. Sunday's the Lord's Day. Anyway, my point, getting back to this, is that Christians should not be judging each other over this kind of stuff. We should be thankful that each person is doing what they're doing unto the Lord. And if we would do so, that would foster unity, that would show love. The whole world would know that we are his disciples, and we wouldn't need to worry about Paul's warning here. So, With all that, I hope that Paul's explanation of all of this, as well as his warning, has really taught us how to think about these matters in this chapter. I pray that it's taught us how to understand this chapter, since it is so often misused. And I'm sure you probably want more application, and I don't blame you. More application will come next time. See, Paul's given the theology, he's laying the groundwork here, so that we could properly think about liberty, personal preferences, and benign cultural differences. Once we get to verses 13 through 23, it's all application. It's all specific commands of application that deal with the specific context in Rome, that situation they're dealing with. And then from those specific commands, we could extract the principles that would apply to us in our context, right? So we're going to have to wait until we get to verses 13 through 23 for a lot of application. For now, we've been given a lot to think about. So let that be our application. Think about these things. Believe these things. See what your brother does as being unto the Lord. See it as as worship that the Lord accepts as long as it's in line with the Lord's commands. Okay, the Lord did tell us how to worship him. We don't get to just make it up, right? So as long as it's in line with the Lord's commands, it'll be worship that the Lord accepts. Remember, different is not bad. It's just different. So rather than worry how others are living or how they're dying for the Lord when it comes to matters of preference, Sin's another matter, but when it's matters of preference, rather than worrying about that, you just live your own life unto the Lord. Do so with all your heart, and all the while, accept your brother and sister into your circle. Don't despise, don't judge, it's that simple. It's as Jesus said, John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So Christians, let that be our marching orders based on this text. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, I'll just put it to you as simply as I can. This might seem strange, like food and special days and Christians arguing about all this. Yes, it might seem that way. This is all about how Christians stay united together. The reason why we're even having this conversation is because our biggest problem has been taken care of. That the big problem is not just having peace with each other, but the bigger problem is having peace with God. Right? Because of Jesus Christ, we've been saved. We got peace with God. So this is telling us how to have peace with each other in the church because we need to. But for you, you're not even at peace with God if you don't know Jesus Christ. So arguing about food is irrelevant to you. But listen, what's not irrelevant is a day of judgment is coming. 
There is a day coming where everyone will stand before God and the books will be opened and they will have to give an account of their whole life. And if you are guilty of even one sin, you will be condemned for all eternity because our God is a holy, consuming fire. But listen, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, to pay our penalty for us by dying on that cross so that our sins can be forgiven. And then he rose on the third day and is alive right now and gives the credit of his righteousness to those who believe. If you turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be a new creature. You'll be given a new heart. Okay? And so if you have any questions about this, come talk to me or any of the leaders afterwards. But really, this isn't like there's no magic prayer. There's no raising your hand. And then we tell five people who are already saved to come up just so it'll manipulate you and to feel no. And it's unfortunate that that's how a lot of places do it. That's not how it's supposed to work. You go to the Lord yourself and say, Lord, I'm turning from my sins. I believe in you, Jesus. Then come tell us. We'll tell you what comes next because what comes next is getting baptized. And we could, uh, we could do some discipleship and, some, and schedule the baptism. So anyhow, we're going to pray. And then the worship team's going to come up, sing us another song.